Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Restless the Podcast. This is part two of Rogue Wave number one, The Land of the Restless, featuring Dr. Lester Vogel. In this portion, we just jump right back into it with some questions and answer session with Dr. Vogel, with questions asked by myself, Steve, and Jared. Here we go. Hey, Les, I, um, I know that some of these terms that you've been using, um, to me, they make a lot of sense because I've taken lots of classes with you, um, but they might not make as much sense to some of the listeners. I know, um, you know, words like Torah and Talmud, they can sound very similar. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that. And I, I know also remember from a class you spoke about um, how some books of the Hebrew Bible are, uh, they come directly from God, whereas others are more uh, man-made uh, or come from, from man. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that. Okay, certainly. Um, the nature, I, I think it's really the bigger topic is what is the nature of the Hebrew Bible? Um, the, the Jews are very careful to distinguish between the Bible that they regard as their sacred um, books. And then Christians have what they call a, their Bible, which is an expansion based upon the life teachings of Jesus and the writings of various apostles. For Jews, the Bible is those scriptures that were originally written in Hebrew. They are the books that include the five books of Moses at the core. That is the central um, book, or really the, the, the central um, body of work that contains the various commandments, the history, the the, the predictions of um, keeping to one to to this relationship between the Jewish people and God, in in terms of if you keep the relationship, that things will will show you will get rain in its time, your fields will produce enough food. Um, even something like the seven-year um, cycle of not planting would be something that would indicate that there is a period of time when those who, who produced the agricultural food of the country can stop for a year and they would still have enough would be another indication of divine pleasure with the people. On the other hand, there is um, in the Bible um, instances where God tells the people, warns them that if you don't keep particular commandments, that um, you will be violating this contract that um, I, I, God, am creating with the Jewish people. And as a result of your not keeping the contract, there will be penalties to pay. Um, and some of the predictions in the particular 
portions of the Bible um, are really horrific in nature, and they resonate in terms of Jewish history, um, very sadly. Um, it kind of makes me think that um, there was, I forgot the name of the French philosopher, um, who once, uh, Louis the the Fourteenth asked for a proof from this French philosopher, proof of the existence of God. And the philosopher responded, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews are the proof of history, of the existence of God. Because this ancient text just has a narrative and it just seemed to have played out historically um, and seemed somewhat verified. It just works. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it were, perhaps it was the, the philosopher was Descartes. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't, can't say I'm, my mind. Rousseau? Is, no, not Rousseau. No, no, no. no it was, um, but I in any event, um, this, getting to your question about, um, the Origins. inspired yeah. portions of the Bible, the, 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 God dictated portions of the Bible. Those are the four books of Moses. And even in Judaism, um, you know, one of the very famous commentators, Jewish commentators, uh, was a person by the name of Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, who always went by the acronym Rashi. Rashi is a remarkable figure, lived in Provence in France, um, roughly around the year 1000, closer, in that century. Um, Rashi's commentary on the Torah, and Rashi commented on whatever it is almost that he could get his hands on. Um, his, he had an amazing scope um, and knowledge of Judaism in the in his comments are fundamental to understanding not only the Bible, but also the Talmud and um, just the array of all these issues. Um, Rashi questioned who wrote the very last lines of the Bible. And was it Joshua who wrote them? And, and if so, you know, was Joshua getting dictation from God, like Moses had taken dictation? Um, or was it Joshua just sort of putting the codicil on the end of the Bible? Um, questions that, that got Rashi in hot water, um, at least with some of his um, other rabbis, uh, because it, it tended to be, one has to believe that um, the Torah was dictated by God. Um, for the rest of the Bible, the prophets, the various prophets, the various books of the prophets, and the books of the history of what happened to the various kings and so on, they have a sort of inspired element to them, particularly as recording the, the prophets. Um, the prophets were supposedly people in touch with the divine will, somehow or other, and whose job it was to con 
convey that their knowledge of what was the divine will to the rulers. Sometimes they did it successfully and sometimes not. Um, and there, of course, there are other books um, which in Hebrew are called the Ketuvim, which means literally the writings. Um, they are the books of inspired writers, authors, um, some identified as works of David, for example, in the Psalms, some identified with Solomon, um, who's supposed to have authored um, Proverbs, for example, and other, other than the Song of Songs, other inspired books, um, and some um, other kinds of specialized writings. Together as a whole, though, what Jews regard as their holy body corpus of texts is um, called another, another acronym, Tanakh. Tanakh. Tanakh is made up of the first letter of three different words. Torah, Nevi'im, which were the prophets, and Ketuvim. And the, the letter that is used for Ketuvim, although that sounds like a hard K, um, is also, in certain circumstances, a pronounced with a, as a, a more guttural sound. Um, so that's the, the corpus of the Jewish Bible. Um, together with the Jewish Bible, um, there are other kinds of books, associated books, um, apocrypha, books, um, which were or were not recognized in, in terms of the canon of Jewish literature. But probably the, the human masterwork, the, the uh, piece of literature that Judaism is probably proudest of and has been probably for the last at least 1,700 years or so, the core that is studied more than anything, aside from the five books of Moses, um, is the Talmud. The Talmud is that record over a period of centuries of rabbinical discussions, arguments, opinions, stories, some fascinating stories, of Jewish lore, of understandings of commandments from the Bible, of arguments over the nature of certain practices, should or should not something be done, is a particular thing correct in terms of Jewish law, or is it incorrect in terms of Jewish law? Um, it's just a fascinating body of work, and it seems as if it, it is all sort of stream of consciousness because you can begin one tractate on a clearly defined subject. For example, the practices that were done in the temple on the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. And then all of a sudden, you're in the middle of a discussion about divorce issues or about issues of is something permitted to be eaten or not? Um, the, the range of thought 
is just so flexible and plastic and changes that it's just such a fascinating work to sit down and study. Um, and it can never be done in one sitting, not, not at all. Um, the nature of, of Talmudic study is one of understanding, but the best methodology for reach that understanding is by studying with another individual and then basically discussing between the two or three of the individuals exactly what the arguments were and, and then questioning, but perhaps something that particular rabbi didn't understand or get right or ignored an opinion of something else. And following a stream of arguments that can be extremely intricate. Um, there was a, I've mentioned this in class uh, because it has been a remarkable modern phenomenon in Judaism. Um, Jews have been studying Talmud for centuries. Um, there were periods of time, unfortunately, when the Talmud was targeted uh, under church auspices um, and burned, collected by uh, figures and um, burned. It was a terrible um, loss of Talmudic works um, in Paris, for example, in the Middle Ages. Um, and, but thankfully, because of the spread of Jews in different communities, um, it's always somewhat possible to put together the nature of the text. There have been tractates of the Talmud that have been lost. Um, you know, that people assume that there may be something on a particular topic. But um, the number of volumes of the Talmud, I mean, I, for example, I have at home, I have a set of the Talmud um, published by, it's in English and in Aramaic, which is the language of the Talmud. And of the 60-some tractates, um, they are, my collection consists of almost 70 volumes of, on just two shelves of various um, tractates. And the thing that I mentioned, that something very remarkable, that's very recent, back in the 1920s, there was a, the head of the Talmudic Academy in Lublin, which was, among Jews, very highly regarded. His name was Rabbi Meir Shapiro. And he had this idea that Jews were all studying Talmud, but, um, you know, some here were studying about uh, one holiday. Another was studying laws of, of divorce. Another was studying uh, laws of sacrificial... Um, animals and another about rules of what is kosher and what is not. And, um, and he had the idea that having everybody, all the Jews in the world who study Talmud, be on the same page at the same time. And so he started something which has become called Daf Yomi. The word Daf means a page and Yomi means a day. So it's like a page a day. And this was back in the 20s. Um, and the idea at first was resisted because 
The Talmud sometimes can be so dense you can spend days studying not even an entire page, but a quarter of a page. Um, but his idea, after a while, took off. And actually, coming up January 1st, I believe, it happens to be um, on January 1st, there is going to be um, another end of the cycle that began almost seven and a half years ago of the current page day. Um, and they're going to, they're going to be massive um, um, celebrations. Um, I went several years ago. Uh, it was one of my goals when I retired from working for the federal government that um, I spend time. Uh, I wanted to see what it was like to study Dafiomi. And um, it, it just pulled, pulled me right in. Um, it is just so fascinating. Um, and I, in fact, I had finished, I had gone through one cycle, and I remember attending a celebration at MetLife Stadium up in the, uh, the Meadowlands of New Jersey. Um, thousands of people there. And it was really a, an amazing event. All of them had been there to celebrate the completion of the cycle. And in that same time, as this is a Jewish custom, they began the next cycle. So um, that happens every year, in fact, in terms of the Torah reading. You know, the, the, reading the Torah on a weekly basis is a fundamental part of Judaism. Um, and every year, at the very last day of the holiday of Sukkot, which is, that has a separate name called Simchat Torah, celebrating the Torah, the very last part of the section of the Torah um, is read about the, the end of Moses' blessing to the people and then basically his death and passing and and at the same time, after that is read, immediately after that portion is read, the very beginning of, of, of Genesis is started at that same celebration. And then, although that's done at that last day of the holiday, it from going starting from Genesis is actually done again at the Sabbath of that, when that occurs, right after that holiday. So it's continuous. It's, it, it is, it is I, I wouldn't say it's an obsession, but there's a richness to the amount of information and the flexibility of the text to be inspirational, depending upon, you know, the, the speaker, depending upon how knowledgeable that person, he or she is, and they're, they're accessing various commentaries of, of which there are very, very many. Um, so. Well, that's, you know, perhaps one of the, uh, Jared, something on your mind? Okay. It's been a great discussion with that. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think about is in that historical crossing over into the promised land. And, and it's, almost geographically where Israel is today, uh, minus a few, somewhat of the territory. But why, 
why that area? And I'm speaking as a physical geographer and a mm-hmm. geologist and, and uh, from my background. But what about that region? What about that spot that God wanted them to settle there? The Jewish people to settle in that in that place. Some some have said in the past it's it's uh, because it's the center of the world. In in many ways, if you look at a globe, that strip of land, really at the the, the far eastern end of the Mediterranean, is the only place where the Eurasian and African land masses connect. There is a land bridge there, basically. That land bridge doesn't exist over at the other end of the Mediterranean, at the Straits of Gibraltar. There's a separation there. But that strip of land is basically a a land bridge, has been a land bridge going back perhaps to the very beginning of humanity. In fact, some of the earliest Israeli archaeologists um, occasionally come up with findings in various caves, particularly in the the Carmel region up north, of um, early humans who have migrated or heading north from from Africa and into the Eurasian landmass. So it it is um, very much so... um, a key part, a key, a key connection between a huge land portion of the earth. But also, I th- have you mentioned earlier um, about the nature of being in our agricultural societies way back in ancient times, that the importance of the availability of water for agriculture, that issue was solved for people in Egypt with the Nile River overflowing on a a predictable basis and also for the people in Babylonia with the the Tigris and Euphrates watering their area for agricultural purposes. So there was something regular in those areas, they didn't need to depend upon heaven for rain. Um, but the area of the land of Israel did. It, it has um, very small water resources. Um, you have the Sea of Galilee up in the north. You have even a little bit further up from that um, Mount Hermon, um, which has snow on it, and snow, if depending upon whether or not it's a rich snow um, winter or no snow winter, could or could not contribute to some of the, the availability of water. The Jordan itself is um, I, one of the people that I, in my book about um, Protestant Americans in the Holy Land in the 19th century, um, there's a very funny quote from Mark Twain, who, having come, having been a Mississippi River pilot, 
just could not fathom what a little stream of water the Jordan River actually is. He, I think he, he made a, a remark to the effect that he felt sort of, um, he was carrying this burden of assuming that the Jordan must have been three times the size of the Mississippi. And, and it was actually very quite, quite small and still is today. But there's something fascinating about the geography of the country because what you have at one end, at the western end of the country, along the seacoast, is an, an area that rises slowly and then becomes a mountainous spine down the middle of the country. Jerusalem is part of that spine, and it continues down all the way from the area of Samaria and down to um, Hebron. But then after that, that um, mountain, that central spine, the earth seems to just drop off, particularly from Jerusalem on down. Um, when you're looking at the Dead Sea, I, my daughter lives, um, from where she lives, if you step out of her front door and turn to the left, you can see the back of the Mount of Olives. And if you look in the other direction, on a good day, if the, the air is clear, or in the evening, if the air is clear, you can see not only the hills on the other side of the Jordan River, the mountains, but you can also see sometimes the lights of Amman, Jordan, from, from her front door. Um, so it's extremely compressed, very, very compressed. And that might be hard for us to understand as Americans who have this vast wilderness to the West. And yeah. So we think of it that, that way, and, and what you're saying is it's a whole lot more compressed than you might think. Yeah, very much so, very much so. To travel from the north all the way down to, for example, a lot, the very southern part where um, the the Red Sea comes up. Um, probably you can do that in three, four hours or so in a drive. Mm. Um, and part of that drive is only because some of the roads in the south are still single lane, or used to be anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's extremely compressed, but it's a fascinating area, though. Um, when you drive down to the Dead Sea, you're driving through the Judean desert, and it is just, call it mystical, but it is an amazing sight to see. Um, the, just the rolling hills with no vegetation on them at all. Um, and then scattered Bedouin encampments around different locations. Um, it's just fascinating. And then once you get down to the Dead Sea area, you're on a plain um, and you have walls of mountains on both sides in the, the Jordan Rift Valley, which is the deepest um, uh, part in the, in the surface of the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just fascinating to see. And, and often when you read the writers of of the, the Hebrew Bible, particularly when we get into Psalms, 
the the visionary things that and the imagery that say the the writer of Psalms was, which I assume would be David, perhaps, perhaps yeah. When he speaks of green pastures and quiet mm-hmm. waters, mm-hmm. when we as Americans read that, maybe it's not the same image that uh, that shepherd was seeing at that time. And mm-hmm. when we think of green pastures, we think of these lush green cattle fed. You know, pastures and the still waters, this babbling brook of peace and things like that's mm-hmm. not the story, is that? Not necessarily, no, because you're talking. It's interesting. Um, during a recent visit, um, I was there with um, visiting my daughter and her sister and her family also at the same time. And we took a trip down to um, a place called Ain Gedi. Ain Gedi was a site. Uh, mentioned as being the hide, one of the hiding places of David when he was being pursued by Saul. And when you're there, you, you get some idea because you're in extremely rough territory. There are rocks strewn around. Um, the color, the general color of the landscape is tan or reddish in places and um, very, very rugged. Some vegetation, but not too much. But where you find the vegetation, it's like it's overgrown and it's very rich. Um, for example, in the, the wadi of Engedi, which is fed by uh, one of the streams coming off of the desert, um, they're in a series of waterfalls, which are a delight to go climb up, and kids really enjoy playing in them. Um, but you can see how, in a landscape that is so sparse, how something like finding water and some vegetation can just be almost miraculous, and how a poet would be inspired to make something more of it than just a place to just sit down and drink. That's, that's so neat. And even, I think, as you uh, spoke regarding Mark Twain, mm-hmm. his visit at the, the turn of the century was one that was well, about... It, he, he went in after the Civil War. Right, I'm sorry. Yeah. And he referred to it as a vast wasteland or a very dry place. And yeah. Yet today you look at it from satellite images and it's... A, perhaps one of the greenest places in the, in the region. What's happening there? Um, it, probably the, the best explanation would be the repopulation of the country under the auspices or under the movement, um, the political movement called Zionism. Um, the idea which grew out of the 19th century, really, that it was time for Jews to take control of their affairs, particularly in the, those Jews living in poverty in the Russian Empire, which at times was extremely anti-Semitic, that it was time for Jews to take control and move back and perhaps see if there was a way that they could make a living in what had been the, the, the ancient homeland. Some of that effort um, it, it was very tenuous um, until after the, really the First World War, 
when the British took control. And then by that time, there was um, an awareness of, among um, the Arab population of their political aspirate. And that's where you began to have the nature of a conflict that still exists today, unfortunately. Hmm. But the efforts that were put out by the Jews in terms of building the country, of developing the land, it was um, not one of doing so for um, to take advantage of the land. It was one for the regeneration of the Jewish soul, which had basically endured the persecutions in Eastern Europe and in other places. And then with the 30s and 40s, the persecutions um, and the, and the, the uh, people getting out of Germany. And, and then after the war, those survivors of the Holocaust who could make it um, to the country. Um, the tales of people's survival and return um, each person seems to have their own tale, and they are extremely moving. Thank you for listening to part two of Rogue Wave number one, The Land of the Restless, featuring Dr. Lester Vogel. We really hope that you've enjoyed this departure from the norm here on Restless the Podcast. But don't worry, as our episodic content featuring people's stories will also be returning. Though we do hope to have more Rogue Waves to continue to explore other topics relevant to the restless nature of the human heart. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll be seeing you soon.